Hello, everybody. Welcome uh, to another Design Exec Club Town Hall. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design. This is episode 34 of the Town Hall, and we're focusing with a bunch of some of the smartest people I know in the European and uh, UK market, or EUK as we as we call it there in our world. I'm sorry if you're in the UK. We did join you to the EU there. I know you're not like that, but that's that's what happens when you when you think globally. Um, today we're going to take a bit of a dive in and we're going to look at um, what happens to a world when we get to a carbon positive state. Um, at the moment we're all thinking about, well, we want to turn around and get to net zero carbon. Um, I want to explore what it means if we, our imagination is that we actually go beyond zero and we're actually producing more energy than we need through sustainability, what that means that we can unlock as projects, what does that mean for using that extra energy to repair some of the problems of the past and also the projects that we might be able to unlock in the future. But we know to get to the future, there's a lot of steps along the next. And uh, if we think that's 30 years away, many of us will have either retired or we will have been in maybe the second or third job, a long-haul job that we'd have there. Um, uh, will not, I'm going to throw it across to you because you've seen these trends come around for a long time with your with your work with uh, the various design expos and London Design Fair, even when, if I take you further back to the Design Council. They're big ideas, but sometimes they succeed and sometimes they stumble. How do we help to get people's imagination going that there's something like getting beyond zero excites their imagination when we're all trying to get to the finish line of at least being uh, carbon neutral? Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about the journey of expressing what sustainability has been uh, in the context of kind of promoting design or promoting ideas, innovation over the last 25 years. Um, because a lot of what um, things like design festivals and design fairs do are to kind of um, uh, synthesize um, thoughts and kind of uh, bigger uh, ambitions that may be generated through uh, research institutes or government policy and bring them to life. They make them physical. They give um, people something to engage with directly. I think um, that not all of those um, projects, ideas, concepts uh, have necessarily gone on into the kind of next stage of development, but what they have done and what I think the design kind of calendar does is kind of prick the consciousness. It gets people's ideas flowing and it provides a point of engagement that may well be spread across the two kind of areas that I suppose I concentrate on. One is a kind of, you know, inter industry kind of collaboration or kind of exchange of ideas and kind of knowledge transfer uh, to stimulate other things. Uh, and, th and then obviously the other one really importantly is to kind of communicate to larger audiences. And it's that larger audience that is really important in this. And that's the shift we've seen. Uh, and by that, I mean kind of press coverage, I mean uh, engagement with kind of design and innovation, uh, but also really, really importantly, the thing that will really shift everything is about is about culture shift. It's about behavior and understanding personal responsibility and how, um, you know, personal behavior impacts uh, as a whole, because it's, it's a, there's a collective responsibility. So, um, uh, you know, I think I think design has done a, a good amount. It's the translation now because everywhere it's a default, exactly as this conversation is about. There's a kind of acceptance and it's now pushing it to the next layer. 
Julie, um, I'm going to throw it across to you because you're a radical from a, a, from way back. I know when it was Black Lives Matter that we spoke about some of the protests that happened when you were a, um, a, either a young architect or when you were at uni. And it was about actually thinking that the future was going to be better. Those ideals have now moved on a long way. We've also seen things like our well standards and, uh, and lead standards come into buildings. Where does something like a beyond zero go? Does that, is that like lead plus, plus, plus or well plus, plus, plus? You know, a lot of people are struggling to go just uh, maintain those existing standards. How do, you, how do we set their imagination that there's an even larger horizon that we should be thinking about? Yeah, I think that's important. And, Mark, I love these conversations because you always challenge us to things that I hadn't thought about before we got into this call. So I'm going to have to wing it here. No, but, no, no. And that's what it's about, being present. Yeah. I, I do want to caution. You referred back to my time in high school when we were um, <laughs> like that. I'm sorry. What I, have, what I have to say is that all of the things that are happening now, you know, all, all of this um, social injustice that we're coping with at this point, um, a lot of these issues are the same issues we were coping with then. We didn't get it right 40 years ago. And now I feel I'm really lucky to have lived long enough to have a second opportunity to get those things right. And I'm hoping the same thing doesn't happen with sustainability. I think we really need to be conscious every day between now and 2050 that we're positively moving and making differences and making differences in policy, making differences in how we apply uh, to get to that 2050 goal so that we can see beyond. And yeah. I think what happens in the in-between, and I, I don't have a prediction yet for 2050, I'm gonna have to think about that while we continue our discussion. But I think there'll, there'll be so many other events that happen between now and then that are going to shape what that future becomes. And I think we need to keep ourselves all informed of what's going on laterally as well as um, in, into the future so that we can take the best of all the tools that come along and use those and apply those to make a difference once we get there. And I think it's going to be that gathering of information along the way and editing of how we use the tools that come along that's really going to make the difference once we get to that end goal, we're going to be in the middle of the next end goal. Yeah. So and I think <laughs> if I if I focus on the, the difference between where we are now and if I go back 30, 30 or 40 years ago, there was the focus was about high extraction and really borrowing from the future was was the way that we thought before. It was the the type of thing that you could have a petrochemicals industry and it wasn't polluting, or you could go have uh, mass consumerism and it wasn't a problem, or you could go have um, acceleration in policies, economic policies uh, with neoliberalism, and you could leave people behind. It didn't matter. Now we understand that it does matter. And so the idea of that better future is set that we have to go think about we need to have thriving economics, we need to have a sustainable environment, and we also need to have social equity. And if we don't have all three, we're, we're going to have handbrakes now, economy. We saw this year that the social equity handbrake was about Black Lives Matter. But it's not just about that. It's also it's about the um, the way that uh, women empowered the services that are available to support women who are, are being productive in economies, and yeah. and so there's lots and lots of layers, aren't there? There are, but and broaden it back out. It's really social injustice that we're talking about, and that includes Black Lives Matter. That includes uh, you know people of color. It includes women. It includes all different kinds of uh, gender minorities and that kind of thing. We really need to focus on inclusiveness 
across the board. The other topic that I think that you've forgotten are that I would add to the three that you've listed, um, you know, environmental, economic, and uh, social injustice um, would be the whole thing about a lot of this political divisiveness that we've had, that we've had. And I think that needs to be replaced with um, political consensus in order for us to move forward in what we're doing. Mm. So it's almost like we, we should be talking about um, equity and inclusiveness uh, instead of social injustice. Let's get everything back into a positive format. Instead of political divisiveness, we should be talking about our political consensus. We should be talking about um, economic resilience, where we're building systems to make it resilient, not that we're competitive anymore, but that we are um, so all being supportive of one another in creating a success that we can all we can all live from. So, yeah, and and the yeah the point there about the political divisiveness is is a really interesting one because the internet went and created in effect the fifth estate, um, and uh, and so the fourth estate was really it was it had some regulation and governance and we had a way to go and uh, and moderate. Um, certain certain forms of conversation, which uh, effectively is a form of censorship. And it was done in a very highbrow way where we said there are certain people who are allowed to actually have a have the platform and are allowed to speak. And then the group who was controlling that as a, as a, as a guild, as journalists, they turned around and they said, well, these are the people who are and are allowed to speak. And there was some there was a license to operate and there was control. When the internet came around, that license to operate and the control got broken, and it's and it's severely broken, and it's a very unhealthy thing. It's almost like we're living on junk food, and there's not enough nutrition in the in the content diet that we're getting. It's a huge issue to go deal with in Australia at the moment. We've got some laws that are coming around which are saying that. Um, Google and Facebook will have to go and pay a license fee for search results that rely on published articles from major publishers. Um, Rupert Murdoch, who used to be an Australian, so if we don't claim him anymore, he's now an American. Um, but I know he's messed up your country, he's messed up our country, and he's messed up the US. But he's very much pushing that because he wants to go get intellectual property fees for, for the work that his publications, I'm not going to call them news outlets, they're not really news, they're, they're publications, fictional publications. And, and so that's, that's something we haven't fixed yet. And so that we've got, that's a big challenge and it's a challenge which has a toxicity that we have to deal with like we'd deal with toxic sludge if it was around. So I think you're 100% right there that we need to work out that because that the people who are getting elected are going for the simple, easy vote, and that's actually from people who are coming through that echo chamber that's coming through social media. It used to come through a, a more enlightened, balanced way, but uh, now they're getting cheap wins. So I think yeah, I think you've highlighted something that's very important there. Um, Kirsty, I want to focus um, uh, with you at the moment because I know Pressman Goods World is that you that you go look at a lot of projects which are. Um, speculative uh, design and uh, saying, well, this is what a, a future could look at. Um, we, you're probably one of the studios that we see the least amount of your work that sees light of day in publications, but then you've also got this great output where you actually talk about, well, this is where we think that the future direction is, which is very smart, because I know a lot of a lot of people who are doing very advanced work don't have licence from their clients to go talk about what they're doing. So you can probably talk about the future rather than talking what you're doing at the moment. So I want to talk about 
setting that those agendas and getting people to understand that there is a that there are these new alternatives and there are new enablements that are out there is that um, pushing the prefer proverbial up a hill or is it something which is quite a measured process it just takes time um i i this is such a fascinating conversation and there's so many different things we could talk about um so you've thrown me with that question mark um is it uh pushing uphill. I actually think when we do conceptual projects, which, um, you know, just throw an idea out into the ether, um, we actually get, you know, it is a pretty open field, I think. And we get, we have a very responsive audience. I mean, in a sense, this forum is doing the same thing. It's inviting people to debate and engage in public discourse. And I think it's through these kinds of discussions that we're, you know, uh, progressing the conversations around what the future can be. But I think just going back to what Julia was saying in the last um, comment that you made, you know, I think one of the things that's come through through all of our conversations this year, I can't quite believe there are 34 of them already just in this phenomenal year of 2020. But more and more, I'm interested in um, what design can do to help define and help guide what it is to be a good citizen. Mm -hmm. And I think this idea of global citizenship is so important for every country, every community, every high street. Um, You know, it's political, it's social, it's environmental. Um, And it's, you know, this experience that we find ourselves sharing around the world is really, um, you know, questioning what is democracy? You know, what is the role of media in informing us, helping us? What's the role of education? Because to be, you know, a true democracy, we have to be educated as citizens to make good, wise decisions for our whole community that we're taking on shared responsibility for the society that we want to live in. I feel hopeful and optimistic because I really feel that we are at a tipping point of um, how, you know, design can influence and change how we live in the kind of coming decades. But I feel really strongly that that is in the hands of, you know, our younger generations, the, the people who are graduating now, the people who are students now, who almost in, you know, they have or there is, we're in an almost post-war, post-Second World War situation where there could be like an uprising, a revolution, you know, which obviously the 60s gave us to take what is a quite dire situation and make great change. And so, you know, I'm really keen that we at Priestman Good are part of that conversation But, uh, yeah, I'm interested in how we harness kind of, you know, this collective expertise around the world and help those generations make a much better future. 
Um, and, and I think you're really right there. And and in um, uh, episode 31, we had uh, Corinne Sukup from um, from Collins, and she was referring to the idea that we're actually we're not looking up at our elders, we're looking down at our future future uh, leaders, and uh, and we're, we're more likely to go see the some guidance from the younger generation than we are from uh, from the middle middle age or or elders that are there. So I think that's really interesting that we have to work out what are some of those foundations about democracy? What does it mean to have leadership? You know, we've got a very interesting scenario at the moment that the this virus has showed us that if we focus on a me culture, that the that we fall apart. We need to think about a we culture. And the we culture is actually that yes, we should be getting some of the some of our own interests, but we live in a community and we live in a society, and there are consequential impacts, and those things have ramifications over quite a period of time. If, um, if I can chime in here, Mark. Yeah, even please I, come in. Sorry, I know I know I've just kind of interrupted you. Um, I thought it'd be a bit different, wouldn't it? No, <laughs> but this we culture is really interesting because of late we were. We were spending a lot of time trying to investigate and um, and also understand how this amazing topic of well-being, wellness, that's absolutely surfaced in all kinds of literature, online or offline, uh, arising from COVID, obviously. And and if you think of, I mean, so uh, a play of words, we've got illness versus wellness. It's kind of I versus we. Ah, I like that. Yeah. So we've, we've got I illness and we've got we wellness so Beautiful. increasingly we've, we've we're in this age where it is it is the what's important is the collective is the and is the individual individual agenda has kind of diminished and it is the common good that service and during the period of covid it got i believe it brings many of us to kind of strip out our typical daily routine down to pretty basic kind of agenda, I would think. And, and, you know, and obviously the Zoom meetings and everything else that we do has become more rudimentary and is not color-coded with um, too many other accessories. And for myself, I mean, I begin to realize, you know, there's this logic of um, the three H's. So it's the, the head, the heart and the hands. And in the current digital era, and we're in this, we immerse in this situation whereby everyone's become absorbing and using data and, and using technology in such a fascinating way. We were compelled, we were led to doing that because of COVID. So that's probably one of the good things from COVID. But coming back to head, heart and hand, very often uh, information is, is, is rammed down and it does get to the head. So the logical mind does uh, uh, accept and we are we we can read the data we know of how we're destroying planet earth and things like that but the reason why the hands are not really doing anything about it is that the emotions the heart and the real cpu the real brain the real brain and not the you know the heart is not engaged and i thought what's interesting in the current era of social media and the fact that we a lot of this has to do with the next generation, the next, the next, and the next, next generation is the fact that social media has become such a, a, a you know, it is life. It is not even a part of life. Social media is like, is the, the definition of life, so to speak. And whether we embrace it or we, we like it or we don't like it, it has become such. 
And it becomes very important for policymakers to, to really use it in the correct way. We're pretty much at the, at the point where it could either go horribly, horribly bad or it could go really, really well. And, and I think, I, I do not have a solution, but I think something has to be done so that what, what we have created as humanity, you know, in terms of this digital era should be used in, for good rather than bad. I know that's probably a very generalized statement, but the way that it can good, do good is to teach us how to use technology, to teach us how to take on a really opinion and a strong attitude. But I suppose my point is, until the point, um, until the stage when we can use social media to engage everybody's hearts, it's always, it's, it's very difficult to achieve what the logical mind has, has an ambition to, uh, to accomplish. Yeah, and fantastic, I like the contribution. David, I'm going to throw across to you because uh, your world through the uh, through the programs that you go do takes you into a lot of different countries outside the United Kingdom. And those countries have actually been quite resilient here when it's come to, to the virus. They haven't had the same sorts of infection rates that the, uh, the, uh, the Western countries, so the supposed leading countries of the world have had. How, how are you seeing, you know, the way that people are interacting? Because there's a lot more focus on their community and a lot more focus on how they go support each other. Is that something over the last five or ten years that you've seen diminish or has it actually been increasing? You know, uh, uh, Friedman was talking about the social media, it's defining life. Has has that same toxicity from behaviour gone into the other countries that you're working in? I mean, I only know it through quite a small lens, really, through our work, which is, you know, because I think about um, how, well, we work basically in Africa and India at the moment. We have teams there, national teams, and... So what we're seeing is, well, throughout this year, the organisation has become a far more internationalised level playing field because we're all on Zoom, everybody's taking part, whereas it used to be, you know, staff meetings in in the UK and then staff meetings in, in those teams and then there'll be reporting lines all going all over the place. And now it feels a lot more equitable. But in terms of your question about what's happening in those countries, India have had a really hard time. They're, they're all still working from home. And and strangely, Africa, we're working in Malawi, Uganda, Tanzania, and um, Kenya. It's very hard to work out. And they and the staff are saying the same thing. Uh, my colleagues are saying, we don't know whether it's not that bad here and we haven't had such a, um, a spread or it's it's just not what we're not being told. They don't, it's hard to know. Um, I mean, it was a similar thing with the HIV. You know, people would die of various different issues because it affects the immune system, just like COVID has. And therefore, you know, is it put down to HIV or AIDS in a in a setting where, you know, people don't know how people have died, then it's not really measured. And yeah. so, but in, ter um, in terms of the last five and 10 years, I... In terms, in terms of disability, anyway, and, and has the world come together more? Is there more understanding? I think there has been throughout those regions. There's still a huge amount of work to do. So, you know, it took something like Black Lives Matter this year to really start that conversation. And as you said, for the social media thing can, can be very positive, but it can also be extremely negative. And we're finding this out from the reactions that we probably wouldn't have never heard to say a vaccine you know there's all sorts of stuff on twitter about 
well, yeah, it's the best thing that's happening to us right now. And other people are saying Bill Gates is going to be remote controlling you. I mean, <laughs> where do you start? <laughs> Stuff like that. And so it does allow people a much greater voice. And, and so in terms of disability, I think there has been much more understanding and sharing. And, and you know, all these movements, uh, whether it be, you know, gender, um, race, uh, disability, have all had... They've all had to come from the people who are affected by it or put down by it. If you take the civil rights movement in the US and you know that that took things so far, but we've we saw this year, well, actually it didn't take anywhere near far enough, really looking at the roots of what this conversation needs to have to say, you know, this is the history, this was an acceptable way of doing things. Whereas we are taught so much in our own schooling that well, this is just what happened. This is what the British did. This is what the Australians did. Um, this is what the US did um, in those different countries. And and that's just the history. But whether it's right or wrong, um, it's happened. You can't change it. You know, whether taking statues down is a, the right or wrong thing to do. But it does that, that sort of acceptance from the history books of, yeah, that wasn't such a good thing to do. But we'll start those conversations to get people. And I think that needs to happen in gender. It needs to happen in more in race. It needs to happen in disability. But there is a, a better ability to communicate because of social media. I'll just finish by saying I started a speech I gave in Japan last year, and I found this quote because because of uh, you know I, I was one of the founders of my organisation, so my name gets put around a lot as being the sort of person who did it all. And I'd say no, no, no. It's the team. It was motivation. It was my colleagues. It was all of us. And I was asked to do this big opening speech at a conference in Japan for the International Society of Prosthetics and Orthotics. And I found this quote and I thought, this is what I'm going to drive my speech with. And it was Muhammad Ali was once asked what his shortest poem was. And he replied in two words, me, we, which speaks to your mm. illness, wellness comment earlier from and I think you know, that, that really made me think of that quote because I wanted to say, yeah, well, this is my journey, but it's been a massive team effort, you know. And so I think that that's a really interesting quote he made. I've never heard it before. I just read it somewhere. I thought, that's perfect, simple. Yeah, no, it is. And, uh, and you know, the, the focus on how we go get to understanding what the we is, is is really a, a challenge because there's lots of framing that we've got. I, I heard somebody was talking about around Black Lives Matter and they were talking about the marginalised, marginalised, marginalised. And well, what do you mean? And they said, well, imagine if you're an Australian Aboriginal, so already you've got a skin colour, you're marginalised. You then turn around and that you were gay and then you're on the spectrum. Like so so somebody who is has those all three stacked on top. They said there's people caring about people who have a disability that is um, uh, because they're on the spectrum. There's people who are interested because they're gay and there's people who are interested in in if you're black. But who's really interested in the black, gay people on the spectrum? And they fall through the gap. And, and those gaps are, are, are really quite difficult. And then they said, oh, and now you're incarcerated. And so then you've, you've got another level on top of that. And so we need to actually work out how do we understand that, the, that there's power in the diversity and that there's power through the inclusion, which I think we know. 
But if we're back in that model which looked at the only thing was economic leverage and we didn't value the additive side of a sustainable environment and also inclusion, if we think they're negatives, not additive parts, then we've got a long way to go. And I think I think we're on the cusp there. Govinda, your household is full of a couple of future leaders, and it's also full of, I'd imagine, teenaged angst if they're if they're future leaders like that. Um, are, are you seeing that there's a positive disposition that are coming from from those little souls in your well, they're not that little anymore, are they? Those young souls in your house? I mean, there is, and I think it's really interesting. And this is fascinating, and so thank you for including me. Um, it's it's not what I thought when I read the title we'd be talking about, but it is absolutely amazing to be in this conversation. I think, um, I actually think that this has been pushed for a little while from the generations coming up, and I think that's one of the reasons it's become so topical. That's certainly my experience, that the, the generations after me and subsequently my own kids, as you, as you said, Mark, um, you know, are really passionate about, about this subject. Um, and, and it's great because it means that it's more present for us. Growing up as a 70s child, I don't think it was really that topical, um, but it's, it's front and centre and I think it really needs to be. So yes, it gets discussed a lot. And I think as future leaders, sometimes as, as I see them as teenagers, it worries me that these are our future leaders, but Politics is becoming more and more, um, you know, a dinnertime subject in our house, which is uh, which is fascinating to see. But I think I think they get more than than people of of our demographic. They get the importance of longevity, of cradle to cradle, um, of changing the way we live and the way we use everything around us. I think they they get it more. They are therefore more vocal about it. I think I think what's really interesting is that as growing up in my generation, there was a real stigma attached to to reuse and about the fact that everything had to be shiny and new. Whereas I think they understand the value of of it not necessarily needing to be shiny and new. And actually there's 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 an elevating going on of the fact that it's okay to reuse build buildings. It's okay to reuse stuff. And I, and I think that's really important. We need to change the mindset. And I think it is coming from the generations behind us that we need to change our mindset about the negativities associated with reuse and also this whole mass disposal um, and disposable society that we've, we've, we've created after, after the Second World War. So I think, you know, that, that's a really interesting push that's coming from where I'm living with with Gen Z who who are going to be the next leaders you know it's really important but I think I think that that's also classed hand in hand with the fact and and it's been touched on but the word itself hasn't been used alongside education and social discord you know I think we've got a massive issue with poverty and that's something that's coming back to me over and over again now, where I'm feeling that if we don't deal with poverty, sustainability mm. will, will fall, fall down because the two actually have to come hand in hand. You've got to educate, you've got to eradicate poverty, you've got to give credence for reuse and repurposing and give it the elevating, as I said, that it, that it deserves. Stop seeing it with stigma and negativity and change people's attitudes and views. And then there'll be a societal shift. But I think we've got a long way to go. 
And I think these kids coming in that are much younger, you know, the 12, 13, 14 year olds, they're pushing it, but we need to support them. Kirsty, I think you want to go and actually add a comment in here. Yes, thanks. Thanks, Mark. No, I mean, I completely agree with Govinda. We've just recently had um, news in the UK last week that a kind of stalled of the British High Street, a, a chain of department stores, Debenhams, has gone to the wall. And I heard a really interesting uh, kind of discussion on the radio at the weekend about how important this store is to the to the center of towns that no longer have a purpose so they specifically talked about a, a town in the northwest of uh, England called Accrington, which is one of the kind of previously labor voting towns that voted for brexit and the discussion was all around how you know these these towns no longer have a purpose for being and the removal of a store like Debenhams is actually not just about a store going from the high street. It's about almost the heart going from a community, that kind of previous centre or reason that people might go into a town is being removed. And of course, it's not just a shop. It's a place where people of all generations go to kind of engage in social interactions, I mean, particularly for older people. And if those institutions are no longer there, what do we do with our high street? And I think in this kind of, you know, possibly post-consumerist society, what the big question is, how do we create or what do we create as, you know, the focus of our communities? And I think that is the kind of you know, really interesting challenge to, you know, to design. How do we engage in that mm. also kind of political discussion around that? And so it's interesting to have been this group of architects of, of, of what does that become? Because that is so needed, I would suspect, in every country. And, and so uh, just before we jump into that, like I'm, I'm loving this conversation because I said, a horizon out that was 30 years. But to, before we can get there, we've got some really serious issues before we start that journey. And I, and I think that's very interesting. Julie, I'll go to you, but I also want to drag Will Knight back into this because Will's been working on Sutherland, uh, a project there, which sounds like where Debdens might have moved out a long time ago and the reactivation of that. So we'll do that, but let's go into Julie first. I just wanted to... Um support what Christy is saying here. And that this kind of goes back to that whole idea that I had about going from political divisiveness to political consensus. And I think the answer to, part of the answer to your question is, let's look to the community and find out what's needed from the community by listening, by questioning, by hearing what they need to support them emotionally, um, you know, physically or economically. If we go and ask them, what's missing in their community, they'll help us with defining the program to fill those buildings again once it changes. I think a lot of this, you know, what happens in our downtowns, what happens in these kind of sections has been going through evolution over time since the beginning of the Agora, you know, back in Greece or whatever. And um, I think the purpose is constantly changing depending on what the community, what the needs of the community are. And I think building that consensus is going to help us create environments and design solutions that are far more sustainable than having someone, a developer coming from the outside saying, 
I had a formula. It worked two, five, two towns over. Let's try it here. We know it's going to be successful. And I think rather than having our little shopping mall thing that we have that was based on overall populations and placement um, without really asking people what they needed, someone assumed what they needed and they told us what we needed. Now is our term as a community to say, this is what we want and then build it up from there. Well, I want to go across and actually um, uh, ask you some questions because the project that you're working in in Sutherland is sounds like this is a reactivation, rejuvenation. Is it is it just moving people out so that then it's gentrified, or is it actually trying to build the heart back into that population for the people who are the long haul residents and actually trying to reactivate a, a community and a society? It's um, yeah, Sunderland is a really interesting uh, small city. A lot of history, huge amount of kind of competence about around uh, manufacturing. Very loyal and relatively stable population. I might just uh, at first reflect on Julie's uh, point around essentially engagement and communities. That's really critical. It's something that um, that project is very committed to. And I was on a Zoom call fairly recently talking about that process and being able to sort of really get the most from it, not just in the initial phase as things kind of begin to take shape, but also going all the way through to so kind of post-occupancy and making sure that that actually is an effective part of how communities established and maintained as well. So people getting used to sharing information and thoughts and feelings about what their environment is like uh, is really quite important. Um, but kind of the, um, the, the the analogy of the retail space as as a as a as a draw as a kind of social function uh, in a city, I think is a, is something that Sunderland has suffered from. Um, it had that kind of classic uh, kind of 1980s 1990s syndrome of building things out of town and drawing people from the centre of the city, essentially hollowing it out as as a, as a kind of social destination. Mm. Um, so you know, th- there's a unique opportunity. Uh, and the uniqueness is starts and ends really with that city and the, and the characteristics of it, the fact that it's by the coastline, uh, it's very well kind of connected, uh, it has this manufacturing, it has a port, it has history, it has uh, the potential to really kind of tell a very strong story. And the kind of building blocks of doing that are very much based on what the future looks like. So um, sustainability, technology, advanced manufacturing are very much part of that narrative. Uh, it's been driven by a very dedicated team at the City Council and a lot of kind of very experienced uh, consultants who are feeding into it, not least, uh, you know, some high quality architects that are kind of really building the, the new housing there. So, you know, I, I think it's it, it's one of those things where you want to really kind of feed in the very, very latest thinking around technology and sustainability and all these things. But ultimately, people want to live in a, in a high quality uh, home that connects and reflects what they want to do in that space. What's really amazing about it is that there is literally no one living in the centre of that city. But give it five years it'll be populated and it'll be um, brought back to life in many ways. So it's a, it's, um, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating project. It's probably one of the UK's most interesting kind of urban development projects at the moment. And uh, David, so I want to throw across to you here because, you know, we're talking about these uh, community centres have been deactivated and now they're trying to be reactivated. I suppose five or ten years ago there would have been quite a while uh, quite a lot of work that was spent in disability ad- advocacy trying to say, can you make it that it's accessible for us? Has that workload decreased so that you can focus on other 
challenges and other tasks, or is it still the same effort to make sure that inclusive design and accessible design is part of the, the world that's being recreated? Um, there's still a lot of work to do internationally yep. in low middle income countries. I would say in the UK, uh, the experience I have as a user, it's much, much better than it was nearly 40 years ago. Um, you know, you were lucky if you could get in somewhere or or more to the point was it wasn't about getting in, it was about being allowed in. Okay. Cinemas, uh, you know, theatres. No, no, I'm sorry, you can't unless you get out of your chair and you do, you know, I've got a lift or now that's all, you know, well, really? Um, so that, that has changed. Um, and there is a definite, I think, it's always hard to know whether you, it's more it's just something you're more familiar with now and more comfortable with 30 years later, 40 years later than it was at the beginning or whether people really have changed. And I think people really have changed, to be honest. I think people um, are much more willing to talk and accommodate and so on, mm. um, partly because they have to, but they, there is more of that brought in. Interestingly, just going back to what you were talking about, about the high street, I think what I've really, well, it's just brought it home to me, but I, I was obviously always doing it. I mean, it's not like I don't use a supermarket and I'd never shopped online before. And it's a pretty soulless experience, really. And I get a, a veg box, or an organic veg box delivered. I get my milk delivered, so I have a milk one with a bottle still, <laughs> which I rather like. But um, but during the lockdown, when I haven't been able or wanting to go into shops and I don't want my, I don't want to send someone in that's close to me into a shop, I've been using really local shops down the high street. And, and I can pull up outside my car and ring them up and say, hi, it's David outside. And because they know who I am, and that has created a little sense of community for me, hmm. my own, you know, sit, and I live in a city, um, and yet I'm five minutes from the longest independent shop street in the country called Gloucester Road, which is quite groovy and alternative. And then you've got a sort of white ladies road down here, um, not named because of any race thing in in Bristol. It was named after a, a nunnery that was down the road, and the ladies used to walk with white habits. So that it's called White Ladies Road, bizarrely. Um, but you know, those people have been incredibly helpful. My pharmacy will just walk out to the car, drop it through the window. You know, um, hardware store, I'll just ring them up from outside. And it's because you're a regular at those local shops rather than going out to the shopping area and going to be in queue or I mean, sometimes you do need to do that, but um, that, that's been a really interesting sort of wake-up call that actually shopping local and getting to know people in that high street. And I think, you know, the, the, the fact that Debenhams have, has gone, the, the, all those kind of stores, there was talk about how, you know, if an M&S goes, does the town really still exist <laughs> kind of thing um, a while ago as well. And it's a similar thing. And you think, well, how sad is that, that we have to have a a flagship store to make people come into town. But that's the reality, and it is a place where people... And you can remember old... I can remember in my local town where I grew up in Essex, there was a family-run department store on two corners in the high street, and it had a restaurant, and it was the biggest treat ever if on a Saturday we were allowed to have lunch there and fish and chips in the restaurant cafe in the department store. And they're sort of normal now. But it was one of those places where you would bump into people in the town and, and so on. So they are important, even though they're bigger things. 
Um, but I, I do notice that there is a difference in the access. In terms of AT, assistive technology, there is a lot going on through the WHO at the moment of creating a more export route because there's lots of assistive technology that we can all lay our hands on if we can afford it or know about it. Um, but it all, a lot of it relies on the latest smartphone. And while they are spreading around the world, not everybody has one. And so, uh, oh, we'll just do an app and that will be, a, you know, that will be accessible kind of thing. Well, it may or may not be. So there is more movement now. There's a thing called um, AT Scale, which is run out of Geneva. And it's a, it's a collaboration between WHO, uh, UNICEF, um, USAID, DFID as it was, and the Norwegian government. And they are really pushing not only new ideas and new technologies, but technologies that already exist. But how can you make that, uh, how, how can you get that stuff at scale out to people? And, and you know, there's a statistic that WHO have talked about quite a lot in the last year or two. I mean, this only really started two years ago. Um, and it's very fledgling. But it's about getting governments engaged to provide assistive technology for people, which in theory should help us all as we age. And what they've done very cleverly is linked disability with ageing. So they're taking quite an unsexy area, disability, if we're honest, into something we're all going to face. And so, you know, we may not, as we age, we, never, we may not sort of consider any impairments we have, like needing reading glasses or hearing aid as a disability as such. We may not want to be part of that scene. Some, some people, you know, end up in, in it, like it or not. Um, but that a billion people at the moment need some form of assistive technology, and by 2050 that will be 2 billion, because the pop world's population is ageing, and, and governments have got this explosion of need coming along. And if you don't have some sort of help or AT uh, equipment, and it doesn't have to be, you know, a crutch or limb a wheelchair, it could, be, it could be apps, it could be environmental control, it could be all sorts of things. And just going back to what William said, you know, about, you know, the new housing projects, a load of this could be built in. Obviously, things move on quite fast and mm. build things in and they tend to become out of date quite quickly. But the, there is this explosion going to happen of people's needs. We're all living longer and we're all going to need stuff more. And who's going to pay for it apart from ourselves? And if you live in a low middle income country, there's no chance of that. So therefore, you're going to need your family or social care to support you physically because you haven't got some you know, piece of equipment that you might need and it goes yeah. right through so who created a, a list of 50 essential assisted devices as a starting point recommending that all un members sign up to that and and provide those for their populations obviously it hasn't happened yet but that's a, a david I'm, I'm, what i'm going to do is I, i'm going to make another one of these town halls actually a series as we go around all four markets in the world and we'll do it about assistive technology and uh, and there's that very interesting. What, what's the time frame that it's meant to go from 1 billion to 2 billion uh, people who, who need that? Is that in our 30 we year? Now in 2050. Okay, so, so it's in that 2050 horizon there. So, so we're going to get to net zero and at the same time we're going to double the population of people who need assistance. And, and so what, what I've found very interesting with this is the competing priorities. Here I am actually going the high ideal, let's go talk about beyond zero. It sounds like there's a, quite a lot of things that we need to get in order in our house first. Freven, I'm, I'm interested for you, um, 
There's about 1,100 architects and designers involved with the DP group or DP uh, DP architects. And so you've got a lot of young minds there. You've got a lot of mature minds there. Are your clients actually as progressive as the imagination of the team or are you like a lot of designers where you're saying, could you let us go a little bit further? Well, that's that's a good question, Mark. I think think because... The, the majority of our projects are in Asia. We are we are facing a lot of challenges because the the Asian market is still predominantly driven by the economics and the the financial side of things. But increasingly, um, especially where we are headquartered in Singapore, the government from the top is really implementing uh, implementing um, very very interesting and very holistic uh, policies. And and as we all know, Singapore is quite unique because um, there are certain things you can do in Singapore that's quite difficult to replicate anywhere else. But um, some of the policies and incentives uh, really push for the developers to take a more holistic and a more long-term view of their developments and projects. Case in point, um, there is this term which is pretty much common language in practitioners in Singapore now, which is the digital twin. So instead of just going for the BIM, uh, all, all, all significant projects uh, be, be constructed as a digital twin. So that's with every single aspect of the real thing being built virtually. And then it's, the model is then tested, not just in terms of physical clashes, uh, as in the case for BIM to see whether you know you need to rectify things during construction, but in terms of even like the operations and the, the cost effectiveness of the systems that are embedded into uh, a building. So some of these trends that are happening there um, is has become pretty much the de facto um, uh, methodology. Uh, however, I think is primarily and very. Uh, but very strongly instigated by the government. And we're using that as case studies to bring it forth to some of our other clients. Uh, for example, we're very active in China and India uh, at the moment. So we're, we're going there and we, we kind of carry the Singapore flag. And because of that, there is certain, there is credibility um, and success in trying to communicate um, some of these methodologies and some of these uh, approaches uh, but I think increasingly, like I was describing earlier, um, the, the economics side will start to dwindle in terms of power because as you start to incentivize or you start to create some penalties for the poorer approach to doing conceiving or doing a building, then and plus the fact that the developers are, are very smart. The developers are actually building for the Gen Z and even the, the group beyond the Gen Z. So they have to actually build things or products that are what these group of buyers or this group of consumers want. So instead of instead of going against the flow, you know, they, they're, they're listening to the voices of what they want in the social media and the way that uh, everyone's working and living in a very hybrid way in the modern uh, digital era. So I think some of these experiments that are being tested there will, will gradually uh, become more and more successful. But we, we are starting to get some inroads into making sure that some of these ideas can materialize, but um, it's, it's a long journey. And I, the word value engineering, you know, it's like, whoa, <laughs> a lot of ideas get engineered out at a certain stage. 
So, I want, Gavinda, I want to take you back to um, a, a little while ago in London. If you go think of St Pancras Station, it was black. You know, the, it, it was a beautiful old building. It was uh, built around the same time as the Chateau at Chambon. Um, so, you know, it gives you an idea that French were building nice little palaces. This was meant to be where commas moved through. But it got tarnished through the pollution that happened through a previous era. And now it's glorious and it's resplendent. And it's like just such a fantastic building. And in fact, it's the home home for the Eurostar. So, you know, it's like now the connection. So it's got this new era. You've got these young people in your household who are going to be really disappointed that we've stuffed up the politics and we've stuffed up the media and we've stuffed up the inclusion and we've stuffed up the environment. Are we too late? Like, you know, the thing I've, I've always got this philosophy that I'm late. And therefore, we have to do things in a hurry. And all of you know that I try to go fit too much into every year. And so that, that's my philosophy. Have we got the that drive and energy? You know, are we going to serve the young people that are in your home well or do they have to go and now pick, pick up because we haven't done things over the last 20 years? Good question. Difficult question. I think, um, I think it's a myth. <laughs> No, nothing simple. Um, I think I think it's a mix, actually. Um, I think that um, we're still within the grasp of not getting it wholly wrong. I mean, I think that if you look at St Pancras um, and the King's Cross area and Cold Drop Yard and what they've done, you know, it's an amazing regeneration um, and repurposing. And I have to say, I'm a massive advocate of taking building stock and not letting it just be crushed, um, but actually saving our green belt and reinvigorating our, our brown sites. You know, I think there's there's coming a, a point where there's going to be a lot of building stock that's empty. And I think we'd be doing the next generation a great service, actually, to be reinventing. You know, we were talking about communities, but we reinvent the community. We, we repurpose the buildings that we have. And I think that Gen Z will 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 help with that. And I think, you know, we've got quite young members within our design team who are also real advocates of this. So I think the generations all coming up behind see the benefit in the, the repurposing. And it, it's interesting because, you know, if I think about the UK particularly, you know, I'm living in a Victorian house and you're walking through the door and it's incredibly modern. And you walk around and we are brilliant in this, at this country of turning Victorian, Edwardian, old buildings into something really fantastic. But I think the time is coming where the buildings that have been built over the last 30 or 40 years now have to go through a reinvention. And that's both at a building, a use and a societal cultural change that they've all got to come hand in hand. And I think our high streets can survive and redefine. You know, I have a real um, love for the comment that I've made this time, this, this year, quite a few times. And I think, you know, we are having a Madonna mode. You know, it's, it's, it's totally about reinventing. Um, and I picture some amazing things when I say I nearly bought her first album the other day, actually on vinyl. That tells you something. Um, but I think, I think, you know, we're, at, we're, on, that, we're on that edge and we can we can redefine, we can take some of these glass buildings that people look at and think are really ugly and we can turn them into something fabulous. They can be office blocks turned to hotels or you know, social housing or shops turned into offices because we are going to change the way we live and the way we work. And so we have to change our mindset 
on what these buildings can be because at the end of the day they're just they're shells that we turn into something when we move into them it's the it's the people that change how those spaces feel and function and i think we owe it to ourselves and the generations coming to to lead that but i think they are marching full steam ahead behind us pushing the way forward on this so i think it's coming whether we like it or not we just need to get on board and get ready and i'm going to be driving that train <laughs> I mean, a great example. I, of that. I know we're we're really close to the hour, and I, you've, you, I said take us home, and and, and you've done that. Um, so you've done that incredibly well there. I, I, I'm going to feel like an auctioneer here. Does anybody have any other comment that you'd like to get in here, or do you think we carry some of this over into into our next conversation? Have I have I missed out on anything for anyone? <laughs> Can I say something? Yeah, David, please. Yeah, go for um, it. Well, just two things. Just just following up on what Govinda just said. I mean, one of those amazing things I've seen as a kid, I used to come up on the train to Liverpool Street and see all the big gasometers. Never quite understood how they worked, how they get the gas in and out, and how they got up and down. Now I've worked it out. But in King's Cross, there, there are those gasometers turned into flats. And I don't know what they're like to live in, or they, from the train they look amazing on the way out to Stratford. I think what a great use of something I used to think was in the the horrible bit of London, that nether region that used to come in in the sixties and seventies on the train, looking at all this horrible stuff on the outskirts. And there's a great use of it. And the other thing I just wanted to say was I don't know if anybody has heard Obama being interviewed recently, but he talks about this future generation. He talks about his daughters a lot. And how they are holding he and um, Michelle to task, and I think he has some really interesting messages. And I hear a lot of parents, I'm going to kids myself, saying, "God, I'm being told by my kids about the environment. I've been told about the politics in it." I think you know, young people today are a lot more vocal and feel willing to speak up than they did when when we were kids. Um, you know, whether you came from a sort of political vocal family or not, I'd happen not to have done, but you just all went with the flow. But I think Obama's got some really, he's always referring to his daughters and what they think and what they're saying, which I think is a really interesting. Um, and, and that's very recent, not just when he was president, more so probably now. David, you've given me a huge piece of inspiration there, which is I think I want to do one of these town halls where I go get the kids on the call, not the parents. And and it's and it's almost okay. Well, we'll we'll get both of you there, and uh, Will, Kirsty, and Govinda. I know you've got the free, but if you got somebody who's actually a speaking age that would uh, uh, would speak so eloquently for you. Speaking age, I'm not sure about eloquently. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I've got a five and a nine year old. Um, Okay, well, they, they might be they might be just under, but worthwhile to hear. And and even Julie, I'm thinking, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to just see how far does the designer's um, halo go? Even even you know your partner to be able to go get them on the call and say, well, can they go talk about these topics? Because because I sometimes I think we might be in this little gasometer, you know, echo chamber where we can all talk to ourselves. Have we been able to at least get it into the people that we share a household with, let alone the people who are beyond are beyond that? I, I, look, I, I, it's dangerous. I should go do it because it seems like a lot of fun. Everybody, this has been fantastic um, because what I've learned is that it's a high ideal to think that we can get beyond zero. 
and that there's lovely projects that we can imagine in the future. But we've got to get our house in order. We have to actually make sure that we've worked out how to go and cooperate with each other again rather than just chew each other out. We've got to work out how to um, take people forward with us, not leave them behind. And there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done. And that's going to be very prescriptive to different economies. I'd imagine if we had the people um, from Berlin who are normally on the call, they'd actually turn around and say it was a very very different circumstance. It is in Australia, it is throughout Asia. So um, I've been given lots of food for thought here. I think uh, yourselves have had that also. I'm always humbled. Thank you so much to the viewers. Um, we're in the US next week um, uh, for episode uh, 35. And uh, we'll, it'll be interesting to see, do the Americans have a similar idea of what that uh, beyond zero might be? They might even be denying that there's a need for zero. You know, that, that seems to be where the economy is stuck there at the moment. But uh, again, thank you for um, your attention. And uh, panellists, always humbled. Thank you for joining me. Thanks thank very you very much. much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everybody. It was a pleasure.